this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to study and that we have the opportunity to study. And we thank you, guess your guidance and leadership as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 28. Paul and his ship have crash-landed on Malta. Or shipwrecked, I guess is the right word. They weren't crash-landed, but shipwrecked on Malta. So far, they don't know that they're on Malta, where we left them off. And the 276 people on the ship, Paul said that none of them were going to be lost. And so we're going to see that that was true. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 28. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita, and the barbarous, and, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And, then, and when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang from his hand, they said amongst themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffers not to live. He shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they looked a great while, they saw no harm come to him, and they changed their minds and said that he was a god. All right. So we have Paul, the Roman guard, the sailors, the other prisoners landing on Malta. And it's called Melita here, but it changed its name over time. Uh, got this calendar where you can see where, where Malta is. It's a small island just south of Sicily. Uh, and it says the barbarous people. Now, this is not a negative word in the Greek as it sounds like here. It means that they don't speak Greek. So whatever language was traditional in Malta was not Greek. And so they considered them barbarians. Uh, which is not uncommon in the world. If they don't speak your language, they're barbarians. <laughs> Even pretty much to this day, people look at it that way. Uh, so they, they, they call them bar barbarous people. And then in a very roundabout way, in a, in a really strong, they showed us no little kindness. What that really means is they showed us great kindness. <laughs> All right, it's kind of a very strange way to word it. They showed us great kindness, and it's the double negative no little kindness, and it says means great kindness in, in, in our uh, definition. They kindled a fire. They received everyone because of the rain and that it was cold. Now remember, they have just spent 14 days at sea being driven by a hurricane. And hurricanes don't just disappear just because your ship was wrecked on the, on the land. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a hurricane or a typhoon or anything, but very interesting, especially if you're in the middle of it. It gets really bad after a while, and then you hit the eye of the storm, and you don't go outside during the eye of the storm because when the rains come back in on the other side of the eye, they hit you full force. The rains and the wind hit you full force. And it's very tempting to go out when you're in the center of the eye because it looks beautiful. Beautiful, clear sky, no rain, no wind. Uh, and I've been through lots and lots of hurricanes and, and typhoons. Uh, so here they were in the middle of the storm, and it's a cold, wet time. And they're wet because they just came out of the 
Mediterranean Sea because their ship had broken up just outside the island and they are cold. And it says in verse 3, And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Somewhere, whether it was his pile of sticks or somebody else's pile of sticks, there was a viper. And a viper is a large, thick-bodied, uh, thick poisonous snake. And their poison is a deadly poison. It's a quick toxin poison. And they're looking at Paul and... You know, it, it would almost think if it's comical. He's there throwing his bundle of sticks on it, and there's a snake jumps out of the fire and bites him on the hand and hangs there. And he just shakes the snake off. And the people recognize that he got bit by a viper. They know, they know they're snakes. And they're thinking, uh, in verse 4, it says, and when the barbarians saw the venomous snake, they said, no doubt he is a murderer. He is a really bad guy. And even though the gods couldn't kill him at the sea, they're getting their vengeance on land. Right? He, he somehow got away from the gods of the sea, and now the gods are going to make sure he dies here on land. And they fully expected him to fall dead right at that moment. And this is something that was very interesting for it, and it's a miracle that God did. Um, and they go... He didn't die in the sea, and, he, and it says he felt no harm. In other words, he suffered no harm from being bit by this viper. And most vipers kill very quickly. They're, they're, an, they're a snake that gets into the um, nervous system, and they, they kill you very quickly, as opposed to things like we have out there, the rattlers and everything, and the asp family, which have a poison that gets into you, it has to go through the bloodstream before you get really sick. So if you're going to get bit by a snake, get bit by an asp, not a viper. <laughs> um, and this is, a, one, this is the worst snake that he could be bit by. This is in the cobra family. You know, I'm sure it wasn't a cobra, but it's in that cobra family, the neuro neurotoxin uh, family that he's being attacked by. And they're watching him thinking... Okay, he's going to keel over any moment. Uh, you know, he's a really bad dude. He got away from the sea and the gods didn't get him. And they're watching him. They expected him to start swelling up and fall over. And he didn't, and he didn't do either one. And, you know, this is something that is so interesting. When you look at somebody, you go through something in your life and you, things don't happen the way people think they should have happened. And people are going... At first, it's like, well, is there something wrong with him, or what's going on, or how are they protected? And this is what they finally come, come about it, and they look for him. He didn't die. He didn't. And it says they looked for a great while. They probably had people following him. How long is it going to take this guy to fall down? You know, he has lasted longer than anybody we've ever seen. Most people, when they get bit, you know, they're going, they fall down immediately, or they're, or they're suffering, and he is still walking around. He is still doing whatever it was he was doing, and then they had a change of heart. Okay, he hasn't died, he's not a bad guy, <laughs> he's a god. This is something, that, and this is where it leaves it, it doesn't tell us anything about Paul having to settle them down and, and worship to them, uh, but you've got to remember, Paul can't talk to them. They're barbarians, they don't speak Greek, and Paul probably doesn't speak the native language of Malta. 
He speaks Hebrew, he speaks Latin, he speaks, he speaks Greek, but probably not whatever language is native there in Malta. So he's got a problem on his hand because they're now thinking he's a god, and I can almost picture them bowing down and, and worshiping, and he's trying to get them to stand up without being able to communicate to them. Uh, so we've got a problem developing for Paul. How do I communicate with these people that aren't understanding Greek or Latin? So we, there's a problem for potential here, and that's where it drops it. It doesn't give us any more detail on that. Uh, it's, it's kind of irritating on one side, but it's just, okay, they thought he was a god. Uh, verse 7. In the same quarters were the possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases on the island came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they ladened us with things as were necessary. All right, so again, here are some old words that we're going to try to define because these are not quite the same things. It says, in the, in the same quarter were possessions of the chief man. So in that area that they were landed were the residents of this chief man. Now this name of this chief man is a Roman name. Publius is a Roman name. So it is apparent that he is the Roman governor or the chief governor of Roman leader over the island. And so now they find somebody who speaks Greek or Latin that they can now speak to. Um, and it says that he welcomed them and lodged them for three days. Now, why it was three days, we don't know, because we're going to find out he spends, they spent three months there. So it probably took some time for approval to be made for them to, to get a place to stay and arrange for funds to be transferred. So this Publius puts, you know, puts up 276 people in his residence which tells us that he didn't have just a small house. He had an entire um, castle type thing. He has, he has a huge residence. He is, he is an important man on the island. And they're going to stay there. He's, they're going to stay for three days until he finally arranges for them to get some place to stay for the next several months. And his father, uh, excuse me, and his father was sick of a bloody, bloody flux. Now, if you don't know what flux is, it is a discharge, a bodily discharge. Uh, and in the, in the Greek, it shows us that it came out of his backside. <laughs> huh? Dysentery is one of those words. So he is a sick man. He's having a lot of hard time. He's having a bloody discharge, uh, probably having... Uh, diarrhea as well in the process and has a large fever. So dysentery could very well be what it is and that's one of the words that they do translate that in as dysentery. So he is a very sick man and Paul goes in, lays his hand on, prays for him and he gets, he gets healed. This is what God did 
and does often to use a miracle to draw people to God because Paul is always going to point them to God. And the result of this was lots of other people came. All right. Uh, there's somebody here that can heal the sick. And it's going to give Paul an opportunity to witness and share the gospel message. Now, we don't hear anything about the message that he shares. We don't hear anything about him starting a church here. We don't hear anything about him, you know, witnessing or anything and starting a church, nothing. All we do is he heals Publius's father and heals many others. <laughs> well, hopefully Publius knows their language. At this point, I think there's a translator. I'm sure there's a translator at this point. Because Paul, I don't know, that would have done this if he couldn't be able to communicate to them that this is all the God of the universe. Uh, so I think Publius, being the governor, had some translators that could translate the language barrier for them. Uh, doesn't say that, but I'm sure that that had to have happened. Uh, at least because we know that Publius is a Roman name. So they're in a Roman facility, and it probably took him a little while to arrange for a Roman guard to be set up in a house and the, you know, get, you know, get the treasurer to a lot enough money to, to do the paperwork to allocate these guys living in some home for a period of time. Now, it's amazing how bureaucracy has never not existed. Now, and, and I love reading the Bible because you see the bureaucratic red tape all over the scriptures. I think the first appearance that I can remember it showing up is when Joseph takes 20% uh, of all the harvest and then sells it back to the, to the Egyptians when, it, when they were starving to death. Uh, the government took all their food and then sold it back to them. Uh, and he had to keep track of all the food that was everywhere. And you know, that we saw all that red tape that was involved in, in this material. You know, we kind of think you know, this all, all the bureaucracy and red tape is something new. It's always existed, and I'm sure this is why Pooby has put them up for three days. I've got some red tape that has to be, you know, been taken care of. We've got to jump through the right hoops to make sure that I can get the money out to the right people, and most importantly, that I get reimbursed. <laughs> okay. Um, and so he does this, and it says, and they also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laden us with much of such things as was necessary. Paul is making a hit with these people, and they're giving great honor. And, and the language here is that they're giving praise, they're giving gifts, they're giving this. This is kind of a hard part because, uh, and this is why I kind of believe that Paul would not have taken this if they still thought him a God. So I believe there had to have been some interpreter so he can say, this is all God, if you're given it, it belongs to God. Otherwise, I don't see Paul taking these gifts and this honor uh, that they were bestowing on him. And when it's time to leave, they were so happy. This is why I kind of believe there was a church left in Malta that Paul's probably getting ready to send. Well, send somebody over here to help you get going because three months is a, not long to be able to train somebody to become a pastor of a church, especially one that does not have the scriptures. And we see here that Paul is getting honored He's, he's a miracle worker. He didn't get killed by that, by that viper. And he can heal people. So it took a while. And Paul's building a church here. And kind of the amazing thing is how short a period of time Paul spent in so many of these cities and left churches. 
And I kind of wonder, how did he put somebody in charge of a church you know, in such a short period of time? How does somebody become grown enough and know enough about God to be able to interpret the scriptures to be a pastor? And Paul had to have been an amazing teacher to be able to get people ready to teach and take over a church. Because you only have three months here where these people are going to learn about God. And these aren't Jewish people. You know, there's no Jewish people here to, to be taught first. So I, I don't re- know much about this church, but it says they gave them great gifts. They, they supplied him on his way out the, off the island. Verse 11. And after three months, we departed in a ship of, of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux, and landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. And from there, and from thence we fetched a, com- fetched a compass and came to Rigivium. And after one day the south wind blew and we came up next to Putuali. And there we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. Okay, so they get ready for their trip. They find another Alexandrian ship. This one, it says, has... Uh, what it, it wintered there and it had the sign. This was the image. They had a carved image in the front of the ship of Castro and Pollux. Now, Castro and Pollux were supposedly the twins of Jupiter and the human woman Leda. So these are supposedly demigods, half-gods. And they were the guardians of sailors. They also were supposedly taken up into the heavens. And if you want to guess which constellation the twins made, it was Gemini. (laughs) So they supposedly were taken up into heaven and made the constellation Gemini. What was the lady? Lady. Where did I write it down? Leta, L-E-T-A. So they were some half-gods, demigods, supposedly. (laughs) And they were, by the mythology, they were taken up into the sky and made made stars in the constellation of Gemini. So this is the ship that they're on. So this is a Roman, a ship that's, you know, looking to the Roman gods to, to, for guidance. And I, I just find it interesting that they throw that little detail in, in there. Uh, Paul says, you know, hey, this, this, is a, this is the boat that is following after idols. And so we see that process going on. And then they spent their three, day, uh, three months there going through the winter, getting to a time when they could actually safely sail to Rome. And then when they get going, they, they, they landed at Syracuse, which was in Sicily. So they went straight north and landed in in Sicily. And they stayed there three days, most likely waiting for the right winds and and maybe a small storm to to pass on. And then it says, from thence we fetched a compass. Now this term is quite interesting. It's used six times in the scriptures. And it literally means that you just circle something. You go around something. You, you go around something, they're going up the coast, they're going around, around the waves, they're not going in the straightest way. 
Uh, if you look at the term up in the, in the Bible, usually it is, we, it talks about boundaries, the circle of the boundaries. It talks about uh, when I bypass something, I'm, I'm fetching a compass, I'm going around, around the border of something. So it's indicating that someplace between Syracuse and, uh, and uh, Regium, there was something they were going around. Whether it was a reef or a sandbar or something, there was some border that they were marking. Now, if you're trying to find these names on the map I gave you, we'll note that it's, the map is in Italian. It's the only free map I could find, that, and it's in Italian. So you're not going to find the exact names that we're using here. Um, so they, they managed to go up there. They went around something and came to him. And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came to, the, to Potiliae. So they finally got a south wind and were able to go up the coast of Italy, on the west side of the boot of Italy, to get to a town very close to Italy, uh, to Rome. So they're, they're going to go way up there. And it says, there they found brethren that desired them to tarry, for, and they stayed there for seven days and then went toward Rome. I find it very interesting that everywhere Paul goes, if there's people who want to talk to him, the centurion lets them talk. You know, because he could be the regular police officer and say, no, we're going to get moving, Paul. We've got to get to Rome. We've already been on this trip for you know, longer than we should have been. But everywhere he goes, he lets Paul talk to the people who wants to talk to him. And you know, he, he was able to spend a day, uh, spent three days in Syracuse. Now he's going to spend seven days talking to the Christians in that town. We mentioned before, I almost believe this centurion has gotten saved. Now he's wanting to say, okay, Paul, we're going to let you talk to anybody that God tells you to talk to, and we're just going to make, make room for you. He had very much at least admires Paul. Whether he's saved or not is another story, but he very much admires Paul. Now there is a long history, whether it's true or not, of this centurion going off and becoming a Christian and abandoning the Roman army and all of that, but, you know, I don't know, there's no proof of that statements on it. But tradition says that he did. So, but everything about this seems to indicate that this man is a believer at something, or at least a great admirer of Paul by this time. He has spent months with Paul. It took him a month just to get to the place where they got stuck for, three, for, for two weeks in the storm, and he's the one that stopped his... his, his uh, band of soldiers from killing the prisoners because Paul said they were all going to make it on land. So there's something about him and Paul. Whether it's just great ad, ad, admiration or did he become a Christian, we don't know. There's no, no indication of it. But he's allowed Paul three days here, seven days here. Uh, he doesn't seem to be in any great hurry to get to Rome. Now, also during that time, you've got to remember, there's no radios to call in on. There's no telephones to call in. They don't Maybe they don't even know that he's on his way until he gets there and show, presents the, the papers. He's going to tell them that they were shipwrecked and all these things uh, when he finally gets there. But we see that Paul is going to spend seven days, and then it says, then they went on to Rome. You're getting pretty close. If you look at the map, it's that, la that bottom little dot in the middle of Italy that they're at right now. And then we see 
in verse 15. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered his prisoner to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. All right. I'm sure you know all these places that we're talking about here. So we're going to talk about a little bit of the history on these places. Right now, they are headed up the Appian Way, which you've probably heard of the Appian Way. It's a major Roman road that ran from the southern tip of Italy up to Rome. Oh. And this, this major road was built by Appius Claudius in 300 B.C., he was a big germ, uh, germ, big germ, big Roman uh, statesman, and he decided he wanted to see a, a major road go from the north, from Rome down to the south, and make sure travel could come up. They are following that road. Appii is a major stop on that road. Uh, I would almost say it's a big truck stop area. It would have the the, the hotels and the, and the inns and all of this. It was a, when you got there, you knew that you had just one or two days to get to Rome. It's about 50 miles from Rome, 50 to, 50 to 60 miles. So you have one hard day or two or three slow, you know, easy days to Rome from Appii. And it's called the Appii Forum. And this is where they're at. And at this point, Paul is met by Roman Christians that come up to, to meet him. Just to the north of Appii is the, the, uh, three, the three taverns inn. And it was another, it was a very famous place. It was, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like in today. Uh, damn jail. Huh? Damn jail. Uh, whatever it is, you're in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden, this is the city you come to. Vegas. Yeah, Vegas uh, you know, it's not quite as big as Vegas, but it's a, it's a place... Yeah, I'm thinking more of, you know, if you've ever traveled through Montana and everything, you go down the highway and there's big signs saying, wall drug this many miles away, wall drug this many miles away. Like this is a big place and you get there and it's this little tiny store. But it is the only store for hundreds of miles in any direction. This is the three taverns in Appii. You've been going a long ways and all of a sudden you get to civilization. And it's a big big deal. Now, Paul is going to be encouraged. Now, we don't really know why, because it doesn't tell us what has encouraged him. It says, and uh, when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. What did he see? The three inns, the three inn tavern, the three tavern inn, Appii, the Christians coming from Rome, all of the above, the end of his trip, who knows? We don't know exactly what it was. I think it was a little bit of everything. He's almost to the end of his trip. He's almost to Rome. And he's been wanting to meet the Roman Christians and talk to them. So it's a little bit of everything I think. He sees, I'm finally here. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just days from the end of my journey. And here are the Roman Christians coming out to see me. And this is a big deal for Paul. And he's getting close. This is the same thing that we can feel on. You've been, out, been away for a long time or you're on your way someplace and it takes you a while to get there. Um, 
went out to the, my son's wedding and it was a great feeling to finally get to the city that we were going to. You know, after two days of travel, it was like, okay, we finally get someplace where we can stay out of the car for a while uh, and just relax. And Paul is like, okay, we're almost there. And by the way, here's the Roman Christians coming to see me. And that probably had to really encourage him as well. The ones that I've been waiting to see are now coming out to see me. And so he's going to spend, you know, he's going to see these guys and these people. And then it says, and when they came to, Paul, uh, to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. So he had all these, all these prisoners. He makes it to Rome. He makes it to the citadel that he's going to. And he says, here are all the prisoners. Here are my orders. Here are the prisoners. He hasn't lost a single prisoner. He hasn't lost any of his men. He turns them over. And then it says, but Paul was suffered or allowed or permitted to live by himself. They allowed Paul to rent a home. Now why? Well, probably because he's a Roman citizen. And probably because the charges said something like, well, we don't, we don't have any charges against him, but he wanted to go stand before Caesar. Because remember, when he stood before Agrippa and Festus, they're going, we don't, you know, we don't have anything to write on his charges, but he wants to go see Caesar. Uh, well, Caesar, this is what, this is what we, we examined. We find nothing wrong with him, but he's, he's pled his case to you. And so he gets there, and they see the charges are nothing, and he's put under house arrest. So he goes in there. He gets to rent a house. Now, how Paul was affording to spend all this money to rent houses, I don't know. He's you know, paid, the, paid the fare for whoever's gone with him. And he's renting a house. And he has a soldier standing guard outside his house to make sure that he doesn't go anywhere other than where he's allowed to go, which is basically to his house. In our day, they, we, we wouldn't have a soldier. We'd have an ankle bracelet on our, on our leg that they, they would make an alarm if we walked out of our house. Um, and Paul is stuck in this house. And it says that he dwelled there and a soldier kept him. And so we have Paul, probably not living in the lap of luxury. He's in his own, he's in his own house. He's able to do what he wants. And it says they, they allowed people to come and see him. So verse 17, and it came to pass after three days that Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And, they, and when they had come, he said unto them, men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they examined me, would have let me go because the Jews had no cause for death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal, appeal to Caesar, not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this there cause, therefore, I called you to see you and to speak with you, because for that for the hope of Israel... I am bound in these chains. And they said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning you, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spoke any harm of you. But we desire to hear what you think, for as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day, him a day, there came many to his lodging, to whom he expounded the testimony uh, uh, expounded and testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them 
concerning Jesus, both out of the law of the prophet Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. And some believed the things which he had spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Well, well spake the Holy Spirit by Elijah, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, unto our fathers. And we'll stop there because I want to expound upon this before we get into that prophecy. Paul gets settled in. It takes him three days to settle in, and he calls to the Jewish leaders of, of Rome, the synagogue in Rome, or the synagogues in Rome. This is Paul's pattern. Everywhere he went, he gave the message to the Jews first. And he can't go to the synagogue, so he calls the leaders of the synagogues to him. And this shows us the freedom of he has. He can have visitors all the time, and they're not stopping him. And they're going to keep this going on. And he calls them together, and he tells them, you know, hey, I've committed nothing against the people or customers of our fathers, and yet I was delivered to the Romans by the Jews, by the, by, at Jerusalem by the Jewish leaders. Now, you've got to remember, he wasn't technically delivered to them. He was rescued by the Romans, you know, they were, because there was a riot going on. And he was rescued, which, you know, he's saying, I was delivered to the, to the Romans. And he goes, when they examined me, they found nothing wrong. They found nothing that I had done worthy of death. And then he goes, but, in verse 19, when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appear to Caesar. And this word spoke against, they contradicted everything. Remember, they had made all kinds of pacts. There are people trying to make vows that until Paul dies, they're not going to eat. You know, I hope they kept their vow because you don't vow before God without fulfilling your vow. But they were making prom you know, they were ready to ambush Paul. Even on this trip that they finally asked, Paul's going, okay, they wanted to ambush me once. What's to stop them from wanting to ambush me on this trip? And so he says, fine, I'm just going to appeal to Caesar because I don't trust my own leaders. It's a terrible place when you don't trust your, your leaders to protect you. And that's kind of where our world is getting for many of us who are conservatives and Bible-believing people, that our government is actively working against us in many ways. And it's only going to get worse. And Paul was in a place where he did not trust the Jewish leaders. Now, he got ready to speak, and the first thing they did was smack him across the mouth. That was against the, the court of, of, of the Jews. You know, if somebody was to speak, you let them speak. They didn't have to speak, but if they wanted to speak, you let them speak, even if you didn't like what they were saying. And the high priest had him had smote across the mouth. And when Paul rebuked them, they're going, how dare you rebuke the high priest? And he goes, I didn't know it was the high priest. Okay, he had been away for a long time. He didn't know who the high priest was at that point. Um, and then he goes on, he goes, I knew that this was going on, therefore I was constrained. I, by necessity, I appealed to Caesar. One thing he knows for sure is nobody's going to, to ambush him in Rome. Uh, nobody's going to be brave enough to ambush him in Rome. At least that's his, his thought process. Uh, this is the capital of the Roman Empire in Rome. Uh, no power of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish believers. Uh, they, they cannot get 
get by in Rome what they could have done in, Ju in Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, they go, well, we have the right to do what we want. He's in our country. Now he's in Rome. They have no, way, no standing in Rome. And he goes, not that I have ought to accuse my nation. He goes, I don't have anything to accuse you of as a nation. And basically saying, I just didn't trust, I didn't trust my own leaders. I had to get, I had to get out of Dodge. Uh, the kangaroo court there was going to convict me and I could not stay and be convicted. And, and they're kind of very interesting because, uh, and then he goes, for this cause I have called you to see and to speak with you because that for the hope of Israel I am bound in these chains. Here is a very interesting statement that he's making. He goes, I'm coming to see you. Why? Because you're, you're my brethren, you're my Jews. He says, I am here, I've been accused by the Jews because of the hope of Israel. Now this statement has three major meanings to it. All right? The hope of Israel is first and foremost the Messiah. The Messiah coming and going to rule, which is the second half of that. And he's going to establish the nation of Israel into its proper place according to the prophets and according to the, uh, the law of Moses. We are still waiting to see that. Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation period. He will make his government seat in Jerusalem and the whole world will be subject to Israel. They're still waiting for that day. This is the reason that the Jews do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he did not fulfill the rule of the Messiah. Now, they, they don't recognize that he came to you know, pay for the sins and all of that, even though it's very clear in the scriptures. And this is what Paul is going to share with them. And remember, Paul is, at this point in time, he's still expecting Jesus to come very soon. And this is the problem that has happened, and this is, even to this day, we hear this. Well, you Christians have been saying that Jesus is returning soon. You've only been saying it for 2,000 years. Well, yeah, and it's sooner now than it was yesterday. Every day is, a, is closer than it was before. Paul is believing that Jesus is coming back in his lifetime. The disciples believe that he's coming back in their lifetime. Because he said... The angel said, the one that you saw is coming back as you saw him leave. So they're thinking, okay, he went into heaven. He's going to come back with an angelic army, and we're going, to, we're going to be put into the positions that we were supposed to be put in. And Paul is in that same place. He's waiting. He goes, this is what I'm hoping for. And then he goes, the other part of the hope of Israel is the resurrection. The resurrection of all those that have fallen asleep coming back and being reigning with, reigning with this new heavenly reign. And he believed in the resurrection. He was a Pharisee. He believed in the resurrection. He believed in all of this. And that put him at odds with the other half of the group, the Sadducees, who do not believe in resurrection or spiritual things. That's what, if you remember, that's what caused the riot in Jerusalem. He saw the trial going the wrong way for him, and he said, I'm here because of the hope that I have of Israel and the resurrection to come. And the, and the resurrection, and a riot ensued between the Sadducees and the, and the, and the Pharisees, all attacking him, and all, you know, 
the Sadducees accusing him and the Pharisees saying, well, if that's what he's here for, we have no problem with that because we believe in, believe in God and, and we believe in the power and the resurrection and the spiritual things. And a riot developed. And Paul is in the center of that riot as they're arguing with each other and getting ready to fight each other. And the worst place to be is in the middle of a riot. No matter what side you're on, a terrible place to be is in the middle of a riot. And especially if you're in the neutral side. You know, uh, that's a bad place to be. And he goes, I'm here because of my belief in the hope of Israel. And the Messiah has come. And their answer was very kind of very political. They go, uh, we haven't received any letters from Judea. We don't know what to do with what you're saying, Paul, because we have not heard anything about what you're saying. Uh, we don't know anything about it, and nobody that was with you had anything to say. We have no letters from anybody, and we have no firsthand accusations against you uh, to tell us what to do, how to, how to believe in what you're telling us. And then verse 23, but. But we desire to hear what you think. We want to hear what you have to say, for as concerning this sect, and remember the sect that they're talking about is the sect called the way, which Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the, uh, comes to the Father except through me. So the Christians were called the way. They were a sect of Judaism as far as the Romans were concerned, and technically as far as the Jews were concerned. There were those who believed that they were Jewish. The disciples believed that they were Jewish. And remember, Paul is going to start a big problem in the church because he goes to the Gentiles. It starts with Peter when Peter was told to go see Cornelius, but there's no record of Peter really ever going to evangelize the Gentiles. He went to Cornelius, uh, he went to Antioch and, and fellowshiped with the, with the Gentiles in Antioch, which, which got him in a little bit of trouble because when the Jews came up from Jerusalem, he stopped eating with the, the Gentiles, causing problems, and Paul had to challenge him and saying, you are causing dissension here. You're, you're staying inconsistent. Either be one or the other, but don't be a, don't be a problem to the church with your, your wavering mind. But Paul, everywhere he goes, he builds churches that are primarily Gentile churches because the Jews, everywhere he goes, refuse to listen. And so he preaches to the Gentiles. And this is the problem. You have a group that is supposedly Jewish and reaching out to Gentiles. This is a problem for the Jewish believers. This is a problem for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. You know, we have them going in and going and having a problem saying, what do we do with all these Gentiles becoming almost Jews? Because now they're part of a Jewish sect, but they weren't getting circumcised. They weren't deciding to obey all the laws of Moses. And they're going, we have a problem here. We have a Jewish sect without Jews in it. And this is a problem to them. And this is what these guys are saying, you know, we want to hear something about, concern, about this sect. We know that everywhere it is spoken against. This has been the problem with Christianity. Everywhere Christians take a stand for what God says, 
they get spoken against. America has been the exception in the world until recently where Christianity has been accepted in the basis of life. But if you go most of Europe, there's all kinds of problems with Christianity. You go into all of Asia and, and, and Africa and South America, there are problems with Christianity. And people speak out against it and it's, it's looked down on. Why? Because Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. And we have been the exception to the rule in America for, for most of our time in this, as a nation. For over 250 years, we have been the exception. Well, actually, you can go back almost 400 years. You can go back to the founding of our country in the 1600s. You know, we have been built upon Christian morals, Christian ethics, and Christianity has flourished in this country to a degree, but it also has been weakened in this country because of no trials and no temptations. And they're saying, we understand that everywhere this step goes, there's problems. <laughs> you know, especially we listen to our Jewish sins, and they tell us all kinds of problems in, the, in your area. So come tell us about this group. We know, Paul, that you're one of the leaders in this group. We want to know. Tell us about this group. And Paul says, you know, and it says, when they had appointed a day, and they agreed upon a day. And it doesn't tell us what that day was. They agreed upon a day to come see Paul. And when they came, it says, there came many to his lodging. Not just the leaders that he had originally invited, but apparently they went back to their synagogues and said, we're going to meet with this, great, this, this guy who's the leader of the, the sect of the way, and we're going, to, we're going to listen to what he has to say. And a great group of people showed up. Uh, and doesn't tell us how many, but it says, many showed up, and it says he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them or convincing or debating with them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning until evening. Now this is a big deal that they, they make this statement. There are some groups of Jews who do not acknowledge the prophets at all. They're just books. They don't care about the prophets. All Jews hold the Pentateuch in high, high esteem. So Paul goes all the way back to the Pentateuch and says, here is Jesus. Here is the Messiah. So that means he's going all the way back to what we say is Genesis 3.15 and talking about the, the one that was going to crush the serpent's head and to, that was going to be struck on the heel. And he's going through all the pole that's lifted up. He's going through the tabernacle and all the symbology of the, the Messiah in there. He's going to the promises. that He's going into the Abrahamic covenant that all nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. He's going through all of this in the, in the, prophet, in the, in the, in the books of Moses. And then he gets into the prophets and he starts bringing out all the references to the Messiah and the prophets. So he's touching both groups. All right, I'm going to get you guys to really, if all you care about is Moses, I'm going to tell you all about the Messiah and Moses. But for the rest of us who actually understand that God spoke through the prophets, here is the Messiah and the prophets. And he speaks from morning until evening. That's indicating that he speaks for 12 hours. Yeah, this is quite a teacher. Paul is quite a teacher. To be able to keep going for 12 hours of straight speaking and probably tired his speakers, his hearers out before he was done. Yeah. 
He is enthusiastic about this is the Messiah. This is what you're coming. And then it says, some believed these things which he spoke and some believed not. We do not know how many of each side were on this. We just know that the, the group was half and half. And it says, verse 25, and when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after Paul had spoken one word. He says, well spoke the prophet Isaiah, uh, spoke the Holy Spirit by uh, Isaiah the prophet our fathers. He's going to give them a rebuke as they're getting ready to leave. And here's the rebuke that he goes. He's going to quote Isaiah 6, chapter 9 and 10, and you're going to go, you're going to look it up in the King James and says that's not quite what he says. But if you could read it in the Septuagint, you're going to find out he quotes it ver almost verbatim from the Septuagint. Uh, if you don't remember what the Septuagint is, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So he quotes this and says, Go unto the people, saying, Hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall not see, and not perceive. You shall see and, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and that they should be converted, and I should heal them. But be, be it known thereof unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Paul quotes this statement from Isaiah. And he says, and Jesus pretty much said the same thing in several places, and came to speak in, in parables so that they will hear but not understand. They will see and not, not perceive. He goes, hearing they shall not, they shall not understand, and seeing they shall not perceive. God says that there's a veil on the Jewish heart. And the miraculous thing will come when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period. God is going to have removed the veil on their heart. And when they see Jesus, they are finally going to see. And they are finally going to understand as a nation. Now, why this is going on? God knows he wants, he wants the Gentiles to hear. Because if, they, if, the Gentile, if the Jews had responded to Jesus, then they would never have gone beyond Jews, even though God told them to go beyond Jews. Because Paul's desire was to preach to the Jews. And because they rejected, he would preach to the Gentiles. And he says, they don't, under, they don't see, they don't hear. And then he says, for their, the heart of this people is waxed gross. This is kind of an interesting statement because it literally means made stupid. Yeah, not any better than waxed gross, but that one we can understand. They're made stupid. They, they are not understanding. And this is God working on them to say, you're not wanting to understand. I'm not opening your eyes. So many Jews then and even today are Jews only because they're born of Jewish parents. They made no understanding of the scriptures, don't desire to understand the scriptures. Even the Orthodox just follow the laws and they're, and they're doing tradition and following rote memorization, but they do not understand. This was Paul's problem when he first was opposing the church. He's going, 
I know the scriptures. He could quote the scriptures. He was a Pharisee. I'm not sure if you remember, but Pharisees had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. And he's taught by Gamaliel, so he knows much of the old, he knows much of the prophets as well. He can quote all these scriptures, and still he did not see Jesus for who Jesus was at first. It took Jesus taking him to the backside of the desert and teaching him through the Holy Spirit for three years how to properly interpret everything that he knew. And he's coming to the people and saying, you're being made dull. You're hearers here, but you do not understand. And Isaiah said, why? Lest they be converted. Lest they be converted and turn to God and be able to say, we're following God. And this is a serious thing because there are Jews that get saved. Don't get me wrong. Not, you know, those Jews who truly want to trust God and understand God get saved. But most Jews do not. They are like many of, even in Christianity, there are many in Christianity that serve God just out of tradition who really aren't saved. And God, I, I read my Bible every day. At least one, at least one verse. Maybe one, one chapter. Maybe I'm just reading my devotional. You know, I'm reading my daily bread every day. I'm getting good, good words. God, I'm giving you about five minutes of prayer every day. I show up to church one hour a week. Maybe you're really righteous and you're reading a few chapters a day and you're reading and you're giving God a lot of prayer. But there's so many people that it's just routine, just tradition. And there's certain denominations that are very much that way. And there's all kinds of cults that say they're Christian that are all about their tradition and, and the activities, just as the Jews have always been. Let's just do the traditions. You know, God, you're really, you are so lucky that I read your word. You're so lucky that I say a few words to you. You are so lucky that I go to church once, twice, three times a week, whatever it might be. But God, I don't know you. I don't really, I don't really believe in you. And this is the way many Jews are. And even in Paul's day, many Jews were that way. And Paul is quoting Isaiah saying, God is, God is hiding this from you because you don't want to know. You don't want to know. And it says, be you known that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and they will hear. Jews, you don't want to hear. The Gentiles are waiting to hear. And this is going to be the problem. The Jews have all the laws. They understand who God is and all these things, and yet they won't accept, they won't accept God. For the Gentiles, they have a different problem to get over. They're not used to just having one God. When Paul's speaking to them, he's going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are polytheists. They have no problem with lots and lots of gods. So the first thing they've got to get them through is this isn't you adding a new God to your pantheon. This is the God. All those others are false gods. They're idols. There's a lot of training that has to go into them, a lot of ways that they've got to change their thinking, which is just the way it is for us. When we become Christians, God has to slowly change our thinking. And the problem with so many of us is we try to add God's word to the way we think before. God, you know, this is what I've always believed all my life. How can you fit into what I believe? And God is saying, no, that's not what I want. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, it says in Romans 12. You know, by his word. 
He says, I want you to be brand new. Forget what it is you think you know and agree with God when he teaches. And that's hard, especially if you grew up in a religious home. It's like, well, this is what I was always taught. I come to church and I do this and I do that and God accepts me. You know, God, I know I'm saved by faith, but my church teaches that if I'm just good enough, you'll be happy with me more than, more than when I first got saved. That's a dangerous one because most people come to church and end up starting to believe that. If I just obey God enough, I just come to church enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just share the gospel enough, God will love me more than when I got saved. Don't ever buy into that. God loves you completely before you were saved. He loves you completely the moment you're saved. And you can't love anybody more than completely. Yep, and he doesn't change. Now, he's willing, if somebody chooses to reject him, to send them to hell. But he still loves everybody completely. And here's Paul saying, this is, you all have rejected, I'm going to... We're going to take it to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to listen. And then we have the last place where this ends. Oh, in, in verse 29. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. That's very mild. They're debating. Just as everywhere that he goes with the Jewish people, there's a handful that believe and a number of them that don't, and they debate. They debate his words. And cause problems in the, in the synagogues because of the debate on whether he's telling the truth or not telling the truth. Did he fully understand the scriptures? Did he not understand the scriptures? Is this really the Messiah that has been showing up and is dead and is resurrected? And they don't know what to do and there's disputes. And the last two verses, and Paul dwelt there two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So for two years, Paul is under house arrest, teaching anybody that came into his house. Now, there are people that say that if you're not out and about teaching everybody, you're not doing God's will. Well, Paul couldn't, and people had to come to him. God will bring people to the church. Now, I do believe the church needs to go out, but God will also bring people in to the church, just as they had to do to Paul. But for two years, Paul is under house arrest. And the book of Acts ends here. Nobody's bothering him. Uh, you know, the guard is right there. You definitely can't do anything to him. Nobody's going to kill him. Unrestricted talk. Now, I just want to go through history for you real quick because the story ends here. Many people believe that Luke died at some time at this point in time, or at the very least did not spend any more time with Paul, because the story just ends. And it ends at a very strange place, because Paul does not die here. Right now we're at about, eight, uh, about 62 AD. Paul is not going to die until 63 AD. He, he is given freedom to leave his house arrest. And there is dispute, because the Bible doesn't tell us where he went, there is dispute as to where he went. If you go to Fox's Book of Martyrs, it tells us that he went north through, through uh, Italy, goes into France or the Gull at that time, and ends up in Spain. 
and then gets up, ends up back in, in Italy, and there he's beheaded by, by Caesar two years later. There is another school of thought that says he goes to Jerusalem, <laughs> goes back up through Asia Minor, and comes back to Rome and ends up dying in Rome. I can't tell you which is true because there are no experts that can tell you what happened to Paul at this point. Huh? 65. Now in 64 AD, the, end, the last part of 64 AD, Nero tries to burn down Rome because he wants to rebuild Rome in his own image. Uh, he thinks he's God and he says he wants, he wants his temple built where there's already a temple. He wants, he wants the other Caesars to be taken out, so he tries to burn down Rome. The people are not happy with him. He, he doesn't understand why the people aren't happy with him because he is deluded enough to believe he's God. He blames the Christians. And a great persecution sweeps across Rome and Christians are dying everywhere. And he finally has Paul, one of the big names of, of, of Christianity, beheaded. He has Peter executed. So he kills a lot of the leaders of the church during that time in 65 AD. And we don't know what happens to Paul from that two and a half to three year period once he's released. We do know that he's arrested again and this time he actually gets to appear before Caesar and he's condemned. And so we don't know. There's nothing in the Bible to tell us what happens during this period of time. While he's there in this two years, he, he writes the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. He writes 2 Timothy. He writes Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He's a writing machine during this period of time and writes a lot of scripture. Uh, so he's at this house. He's got freedom. So he's writing people. People are coming and going to see him. Uh, he's writing more letters than that probably. We, these are just the letters we know that become scripture. And there's many letters that did not become scripture. And those are the letters we know. And so we don't know all of what happens here, but it just ends. <laughs> it just ends. Did he send Luke away and Luke died somewhere in one of the persecutions? Did, did Luke die ahead of this time? Did he stop hanging out with Paul and went with one of the other missionaries? We totally lose track of, of Luke as well. There's no history of Luke after this period of time that I know of. So we have all of this going on, but there's a story beyond this that we don't know because there's another three years of Paul's life that he does something. Huh? Nowhere in the Bible. That literally just comes from history. The beheading comes from history. Peter being crucified comes from history. And we're said that Peter asked to be hung upside down on a cross. Uh, Traditionally, that's what they say happened, but you can't hang somebody upside down on a cross. They would, he'd have fallen right off that cross if they'd hung him upside down. So I don't believe that he was actually hung upside down because there was no way that he could have stayed on the cross. That may have been what he wanted. It may have been what he asked for, but you really can't tell the executioner what to do. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to be executed that way. I want to be executed this way. Sorry, this is, this is the way you're going to be executed. They said, you're crucified. We're going to crucify you. Uh, because if they had done it any other way, he'd have fallen right off the cross. His hands would have been ripped and his feet would have been ripped because there was no support for them. Uh, so I do not believe that he literally died upside down uh, because he would not have been able to hang on that cross. But it is traditional that he asked, asked to be hung upside down because he said, I'm not worthy of dying like my Savior. 
So I understand him asking that. I just don't understand. I don't believe that the executioners would have granted it uh, because that was not their job to grant the ex executed uh, desires. <laughs> so we are now at the end of the Book of Acts. It, like I said, you know, it ends in a very strange way. It just ends with him being arrested. Uh, and it could be that Luke had sent this letter and he never did finish it. Maybe he wrote another, you know, maybe he wrote something that never got published. We don't know. Uh, maybe Luke died. We don't know anything about why this story is not finished. So there's no other writing We have letters that are from Paul that we think are after this, but there's no reference to his death. There's no reference to, to, to Luke during those letters. It never, never says that I'm going to die, Caesar's right. going to execute me, at least not that we get in Scripture. There's nothing in there that really indicates that he's ever away. There's tradition that says he ended up in Spain. And there's some heavy tradition on that. There's a lot of things that almost prove that. There's another tradition that says he made another journey from Jerusalem to Jerusalem and then worked his way up Asia Minor. I tend to believe that he went to France and, and, and Spain myself because if he went back to Jerusalem, even after two years, there's guys that want him dead. And they're going to follow him. I don't really believe that happened. I do believe he probably went into France and, and Spain. That is what Fox's, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs says happened to him. And that was the tradition for a long time. And it's only been in probably the last 100 or 200 years that they've come up with any other idea that he did not do France and Spain. Yeah, I mean, it's irrelevant. It's actually irrelevant as to where he went or what he did. But I just wanted to give you the rest of the story and the things that you're going to hear uh, on both sides of the coin. But it doesn't matter. Paul went out and he evangelized and he built churches everywhere he went. And there are churches all through France and, and Spain that use him as their founder. Doesn't mean that they were founded by him, but they, they trace their roots back to Paul. So I can't give you any absolute authority on that. You know, the original tradition said that he went that way. You know, newer guys are saying, no, he didn't, he didn't do that. Uh, Peter was supposed to have gone through France, Spain, and all the way into Great Britain uh, to preach the gospel. You know, it's kind of fun to look at some of the historic, but we can't speak clearly on any of this. Uh, Thomas, who was called the doubter, we know the tradition puts him in, 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 uh, uh, in, in India. <laughs> he is the patron saint of the Indian Christian groups, and it is stated that he was run through with lances in India. So we do believe that that one is true. There are certain ones we're pretty sure of their, of their history, but most of them we're not really sure where all they went. We just know that they finally listened to God and went, left Jerusalem and went around the world preaching. And Paul was that inspiration to them to go out and preach and teach. So we're done with Acts, and I think I'm going to do Hebrews next. So even though you ladies are doing Hebrews, we're going to... We're going to give it from a different, we'll give it from a different perspective. <laughs> all right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done. Lord, we thank you that you are always in charge and that you have a plan 
even when it seems to us that you don't have a plan. You have a plan, and it is a good plan. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.